Today's show is brought to you by Zip Recruiter, the presenting sponsor of Recode Media. Zip Recruiter's powerful technology finds people with the right experience for your job and actively invites them to apply so you get qualified candidates fast. And now our listeners can try it for free at ziprecruiter.com slash Peter. Today's show is brought to you by Hilton. Restaurant or room service, what would the boss do? Either way, the boss would choose Hilton Hotels and Resorts to get down to business. And a little pleasure. Check out Hilton Hotels and Resorts and travel like the boss. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me. I'm part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm recording this at Vox Media Headquarters in New York City. If you like my voice, I have bad news. I'm about done talking to you. Good news. Kara Swisher is coming on to talk to Jessica Powell. She's the former head of communications at Google. She left last year. And now she has a satirical novel about working in Silicon Valley called The Big Disruption. She's publishing it, like a techie should, on the internet, on Ev Williams' Medium site. So you can go find it there. You're going to hear that conversation in a second. But before we get to that one brief promotion for Kara Swisher and her burgeoning media empire, Kara has a new podcast. This one is with Scott Galloway. It's called Pivot. Not the pivot, just pivot. You're going to like it. Go find it on the internet. And as always, tell someone about this show and all the other shows we bring to you from Rika. Okay, enough intro. Here is Kara Swisher and Jessica Powell. Thanks, Peter. I'm here in Washington, D.C. with Jessica Powell. She's a former head of Google's communications team, a vice president there, and she left just over a year ago. At the time, I reported she was going to grad school, but she is here with a new book with the best title ever, The Big Disruption, a totally fictional but essentially true Silicon Valley story. Jessica, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Hey, don't you like being on the other side of this? Like, <laughs> It's terrifying. I know. I, now it's have good. A, new, a whole new appreciation for what I used to put people through. Exactly. So I want to, you to start by reading a short excerpt from the book, and then we'll explain it. I think it's one from the introduction. Right. Please okay. read it. To interview at Anahata was a privilege, and the next, nearly inevitable step to be rejected from Anahata was a great honor. Just making it into the company's lobby already indicated that one was superior to 99.39% of the world's population. To be accepted, of course, required passing an even higher bar. One by one, the gobsmacked rejects filed past the hopefuls sitting in the lobby, as unsure of their steps as they now were of their qualifications. They turned back to catch a final glimpse of Anahata's collection of gleaming white buildings and smiled then, just briefly, knowing that despite their failure, a failure from which they might never recover, at least they were among the few to have glimpsed the world hidden behind the company's doors. Arcee and Imo surveyed his surroundings. It couldn't have been a friendlier place. Wide green sofas, a gigantic refrigerator full of fresh juices, and a flight simulator to help pass the time in the unlikely event of a delay. Sitting on the very edge of the first couch was a young man, hair uncombed, t-shirt wrinkled, emitting a faint odor of sweat. Crumbs of breakfast cereal cast a pebbled road across his chest. A thin folder jittered in his hand, its transparency revealing a document whose tidy bullet points and blurbs belied the man's unkempt appearance. His knees bounced lightly up and down, and he rocked as he sat, lips moving silently as though he were counting to himself. On the second couch was another man, this one in his mid-thirties and wearing a suit, his cologne the essence of a crisp morning in the mountains. His back was against the sofa, one ankle thrown across the opposite knee, an arm thrown over the cushion as if he were there to watch Sunday football. He kept checking his watch, darting glances both anxious and dismissive at the female receptionists. Arsene immediately recognized their types. The first was an engineer, the second a salesman. And there was no reason for Arsene to think any more of either of them, or the other 15 iterations also waiting in the lobby, as he had seen enough of both of them during his time in the valley to identify their species by smell alone. Arsene had other things on his mind. He was there to conquer his job interview, for he was Arsene, 
Prince of Pyria. Or rather, a former prince who, due to unfortunate circumstances, had been reduced to working as a janitor in Silicon Valley. Or, as he preferred to refer to it, a sanitation engineer. Not that he liked cleaning. He hated it. Prince Arsene had not been raised in the order of the red woodpecker, buffed and preened and rubbed and polished to perfection by handmaidens each morning, with the idea that he would leave the royal palace and clean people's toilets in America. But like almost everything he undertook in life, Arsene excelled at janitorial work. He was so good, in fact, that he usually finished his work in half the time of other janitors. Previous employers had occasionally misinterpreted his skill as laziness and accused him of not having logged sufficient time with the mop. But Arsene knew that truly exceptional company like Anahata would see it differently. Anahata was that company, and this was no ordinary janitorial job. It paid better than any other Silicon Valley by, by a full $3 an hour. If all went according to plan, in a few decades, Arsene would save enough money to raise an army and reverse the unfortunate circumstances that had driven him from his country. His future and the future of his adoring minions depended on the outcome of this interview. <laughs> all right. So that sounds a lot like a lobby I've been waiting for you <laughs> many times. Um, so let's introduce you. That was great. That was fantastic. This is the beginning of this book about a guy who becomes a star in Silicon Valley, but he starts, he goes in as a janitor. Um, and so it's sort of, uh, it's, I'm trying to think, it's sort of not like coming to America the backwards way kind of thing. <laughs> so explain who you are. All right. Jessica is a very, had a very big job at Google. She ran all communications and she had worked her way up there through many years of working there. So why don't we talk about your background first? So how you got to here to write a book? <laughs> well, I didn't start off in tech. In fact, I remember when I was in finishing up college when all the tech companies were coming to campus recruiting. This Stanford, right? Stanford. And it was 2000. I had very little interest in tech. I'd taken a coding class. I loved it, but I didn't want to work at a computer. Um, I remember going to the recruiting fairs just because they would give you huge candy bars if you <laughs> gave them your CV. Instead, I went off and I had dreams of becoming a journalist, went off to New York, ended up actually hating the job I was doing, and saved up and moved to Paris and got the first job I could get because I didn't have a visa or anything and ended up working in communications. So mm -hmm. that was sort of how I got into communications. What didn't you like about journalism? What it turned you off so quickly? And you know what? I, maybe if I had a different entry point, it would have been very, very different. I was an energy markets analyst. Oh, no. Um, I spent most of my day talking to traders over the phone who would give me the day's trade. This is before or just at the start of the Bloomberg terminal. Mm -hmm. And we were doing a lot of reporting on where the markets were going and what were the theories behind why, say, you know, hydropower might have, the price of hydropower might have fallen. So I'd write stuff about, like, salmon mortality rates. And if there was ever an really? issue around, like, uh, you know, gas prices or oil prices going up, you always would just blame a war. You'd find yeah. a war somewhere in the world and blame <laughs> it on that. But a lot of times the traders would just be like, oh, you know, and they do it in this half-joking way, but... It was like, well, I'll give you the day's trades. I'll give you the numbers if you tell me your bra size or if oh, you tell me. No, yeah. And it, you're you know, going to get a lot into that. Yeah. And so, you. you know, I like it. And it just wasn't that fun. I wasn't even interacting with people. And the whole yeah. power dynamic was Gosh, so it crazy. It sounds like the Senate yesterday, but go Jeez, ahead. Yeah. And, um, and so uh, I was ready to get out of there, saved up my money, and went with my then boyfriend, now husband. We moved to France figuring we'll try and get jobs. It probably won't happen. And we'll move back to the U.S. in six months and get other jobs that we hate. But mm -hmm. in the meantime, like, what a fun adventure. But we did end up getting jobs, and that was how I started in communications. I was actually working for a nonprofit that works in copyright and protecting artists' rights. And after that, ended up moving to Japan for a short stint and then to London because my husband was doing a Ph.D., and he kind of already followed me multiple places. So we went to London, and I got there, and I had this wonderful idea that I'd become 
a journalist in London again. And I'd actually, I'd, I should add, I'd written a book while I was in Japan. And so I thought, wow, I'm going to show up there with my book and they're going to love it because I'm, <laughs> I'm young. So I've got, you know, I've got my pulse on like everything. <laughs> and I speak English. Right. And turns out they actually speak really good English in England. Yeah, yeah, they and do. It yeah, was not as a 26. I was it's not much charming, of, actually, right. their English. And I just wasn't that much of an attractive like job candidate in right. journalism. So I applied for everything out there, waitress jobs, CEO jobs, and a job at Google. Yeah. And CEO jobs. I kid you, I was so desperate. I, the Guardian had a great job listing section, and yeah. I applied for everything in there. Did you? Um, they didn't call me back. I don't know why. <laughs> so I went in for the Google interview, and I actually didn't get high. I didn't do great on my interviews. They didn't hire me, but then my future boss or the woman who was in charge of my hiring process, I think, really did want to hire me, so she brought me on as a contractor. Oh, okay. So I came as a contractor. Why didn't you do well? Did you not answer their dumb questions? Well, I remember I, I very specifically—I remember one guy came in and he interviewed me, and he didn't look at me the entire time. He had a computer in front of him and just stared at the computer, and everything I said, he would just type the answers to. And it was actually just excruciating. I'm yeah. not a great eye contact person. I'm not a great—that in itself wasn't a problem. It was actually the typing, that sound of the typing where I couldn't focus. <laughs> And then another person interviews me and asks me how I would do PR for Toolbar. Uh-huh. Um, it was a PR person. And I just said, well, I wouldn't. And there was just silence. I mean, it was a bad answer. I get it. It was <laughs> a bad a answer. answer. Well, it's a good answer, a bad answer for a PR person because you're supposed to yeah. PR everything that they tell you to right, PR. Right, right, right. At the same time, it's a— Please it's, don't make one. <laughs> at the same time, it was a good answer, in my opinion. And what I was trying to defend yeah. was I said, like, this to me does not—it's such—like, yes, there are benefits to Toolbar. It was, you know, kind of a shortcut to the web. But any amount of PR I do is not going to equal what you could just do with marketing and right. showing, like, pop-ups or whatever marketing tools you want to use. Like, your PR person's time is probably better used on something else. Right, right, right. So, right. yeah, the interviews did not go well. Wow. But they brought they me on. didn't ask you some weird, like, if you had this many ping-pong balls in a swimming pool. That's the famous I, You know, they didn't. I think at that point, I maybe like it was because I was interviewing in, in communications. They, they, I think the critical thinking questions were more like— you know, there, there were a lot of issues with Google and copyright and continental Europe. And so a lot of the questions were around that. Right, right, right. Absolutely. So you didn't get the job. You came on as a contractor. Right. Okay. And um, then you stayed. And then I stayed and warmed my way in. Um, and I loved it. Did it you? What, what did you love about it? What did you? I a lot loved, of journalists go into PR, but you hadn't yeah. even been in journalism, really. <laughs> I'd never really <laughs> right. been a journalist, unfortunately. Right. Um, so, you know, we have openings. <laughs> what did I love about it? You know, this was 2006, end of 2006, and I think Google was already pretty large in the U.S. This was post-IPO, but in Europe it was still, like, early days. And I was doing a job that, yes, I was in the communications department, but I was working on book search and Google News and I found—first, I found the mission aspect of it really inspiring, like this idea of digitizing the world's books. Fascinating. You know, Mm -hmm. as as someone who had been in college and applied for a grant to go look at a book that was sitting in a a library in Madrid, Mm -hmm. waited eight months for all that to go through, the idea that that book could be accessible to anyone, pretty incredible. Right, absolutely. So there was the mission component of it. Then there was just—there were a thousand things to do. You didn't have time. So, yes, I was doing communications, but I also got to do some policy work. I even got to do some, like, product management work. It was, ex- it was, it was exhausting, but it was exhilarating. Right, there were a lot of issues. Um, it really felt, you know, like I had a million ideas, and it felt like, for the most part, you could just do them. Mm-hmm. In Europe, in Europe, working mm-hmm. throughout Europe. Yeah. And they had the Mideast, too, right? Was that- and the, and by the, So I started off coming in for book search, and my background at that nonprofit in France had been working in copyright. So I think mm-hmm. that's why I was interesting to Google, was that I knew right. a lot of the people that were, mm-hmm. were suing Google, really. So I started off working in book search, but then started looking at more and more content products, so news and then YouTube. They acquired YouTube. Um, and eventually went on to run comms for Southern Europe, the Middle East, and Africa. Right. And then you were—so you were there 
really from the beginning, from the early, earliest days. It's not, not early, early days because I was there since 1999, but yeah. you, you know what I mean. Like you were there. What was that like then? Because now Europe has become such a mess for Google and for Facebook and others. But were the Europeans welcoming then? They were, I mean, they were enthusiastic about Google, but I think there was a lot more skepticism just from the start because, of course, the Valley wasn't there. Mm-hmm. These are American companies, and Americans have a certain way about them, yeah. particularly abroad, mm-hmm. that is not, does not necessarily endear them to people. Yeah. And here's this company that's coming in with a mission statement, which, which itself, at least back then in Europe, was kind of a bizarre concept, you know? Mm-hmm. And they're making all these claims, but it's still this, and, and everyone's kind of like, but you're a company. You're mm-hmm. a company. Right. And then I think a lot I think of, that's code for we don't trust you. Yes. And, yeah. and I think a lot, not just in tech, but a lot of the biggest issues that face us today, I think, had a lot of their birthplace in terms of the thinking in Europe, particularly mm-hmm. France. You think of um, a lot of the copyright issues, uh, the right to be forgotten, privacy. Like, those mm-hmm. were big issues in Europe long before they were in the U.S. And I think that actually, you know, I wrote this in 2012. And I think being in an environment where I was in London, mm-hmm. um, but being in a city where tech was not by a long shot the dominant industry. Mm-hmm. So you're surrounded by other people constantly, and you're hearing what they say about tech constantly. Mm-hmm. And then, and even, and it was, I think they were even more skeptical of tech on the continent. Being constantly in contact with that, being introduced very early on to some of the issues that people had around privacy and data collection and so forth, mm-hmm. it definitely influenced me when I was writing it. Right, absolutely. All right, so you, you go to Google, and when did you start writing on the side? Because you were—what did you study in college? You were a, I did uh, comparative literature. Compar- so you were a literature person. So oh, did, I love books, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So you, had you been—did you continue to write fiction on the side? Because you left Google for a, the, that crazy company yes. where they sexually harassed constantly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know. <laughs> you know. Um, Jessica has some stories I won't make her repeat, well, unless you want to. But <laughs> I hope they show up all the time in fiction. But they were real and terrible experiences. But then you went back to Google, right? Were you writing during this time? Were you being creative? Were you taking notes about all these things? No, I um, I mean, I since I was a little kid, I loved to write. Mm-hmm. But then um, I didn't actually really know how to write anything. I'd never even written a short story, let alone right. a book. And, and it was while I was at the, the startup that I just, it was, it was a cathartic thing, right? Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm at this startup where everything that I see is, like, everything that we're telling the outside world doesn't jive at all with what we're doing, mm-hmm. where everything that we say are our values don't at all play out in the workplace environment. And in the midst of all this, seeing this own kind of, whoa, like, this is not at all what I expected. I mean, I, I really had this, it, it's almost embarrassing to admit because it really was so naive. Coming from Google, I thought that, Every company in tech had this really strong moral backbone mm-hmm. and that everything was going to be, you know, all these highfalutin moral principles and mm-hmm. stuff. And I get to this place where it's not at all the case. You may name it if you want. And Oh, yeah, Badu. And um, and then I get to—everyone always confuses it with Baidu, and I'm like, I don't know which is worse. Yeah. Um, and then I go to this conference in Germany, DLD, mm-hmm. and founder after founder is getting up there. And, and we did this, too. Like, I, I'm, I was part of this gets up and makes these huge proclamations about what their company is doing. And, and there was a moment, and I write about it in the essay that, mm-hmm. that's up on Medium, there's this moment where Brian Chesky gets up there and he actually suggests that maybe, just maybe, if more people were sharing each other's houses, we might see an end to war. And then I get on a plane shortly after right. that, and I'm sitting next to a, like a DJ slash app producer slash copyright <laughs> philosopher and I'm like, how, how did this happen? Like, how did I get 
in this world, and I, like I couldn't make sense of it. And so I really just started to write, uh-huh. having no idea it would be a book, no idea of anything. It was like a cathartic act slash trying to figure out right. how I this all just happened. I vomit in the bathroom, but go ahead. <laughs> That's effective too. Yeah. But anyway, and then so I wrote it, and then um, and then didn't do anything without it because I actually ended up leaving that startup mm-hmm. and going back to Google. Like I really had missed, and, I'm, and by no means am I saying Google's perfect, but I really missed working right. at Google. I really missed the people. I really missed what I thought was like the integrity. And, and that moral compass. And I went back there, and of course I was not going to do anything with a book about right. Silicon Valley while I was working at Google. Right. So I, so you I, no, I didn't go back and take so, notes So what anything. you're doing is collecting scraps along the way, like, of, of, of your experiences. Uh, different- actually, not so much because the book was already written. And right. then I was at Google, and I put it, I largely put it aside. Occasionally I'd, like, I remember on a maternity leave, I, like, picked it up again and worked on it. But the stuff that I was doing was more... Um, Reference it like I at one point I, I had a nod to Foursquare in there. Mm-hmm. Well, that clearly like that's not so relevant these mm-hmm. days. Foursquare, yeah, right, right. Um, and before I published it, I updated it with like you know I sprinkled some machine learning because uh-huh. you yeah, can't you have, have anything, anything yeah. these days without machine yeah. learning. But what I mean is like most people in the valley are not reflective. I mean, if they, I'm surprised they can see themselves in the mirrors. You know, most people they don't think about what they're doing and and they just move ahead. And I, I think almost all of them are. And when you find someone who's reflective, it's unusual. Um, or maybe they are secretly. Like, I didn't know you were right. Until you told me, I was sort of shocked that you were working, that no one has ever told me they're working on a book or something. <laughs> you know what I mean? Or I do poetry on the weekends yeah. or I, I paint. Like, you don't hear that. You don't hear any kind of thing. It, was it done to feel, to be creative? Is tech not creative enough or is it just a— I think then you wrote about tech. Yeah. I, I mean, I really do think it kind of came from a— a cathartic place. I mean, I always loved writing, and I, I hated the fact that because I was so busy with my tech job, I mm-hmm. was no longer doing anything creative. Right. And, you know, my most creative thing would be like, how do I work this funny little line into a press release? Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> Did you ever get it in? No, they'd always... The, you know the one thing I always wanted to do? Remember when Google would do its April Fool's jokes? And I always thought it would be amazing if the April Fool's joke was actually a doodle, you know, like one of those things that you stare at where then picture emerges. Uh-huh. And that you stared at and stared at and nothing emerges. Ah. And just, like, drive the entire universe crazy <laughs> by— And I actually suggested that once, and everyone just looked at me like, that's not actually funny. And I was like, <laughs> it is so, so funny. funny. Um, what is this? Don't you— And then have people go, do, don't <laughs> totally, you get it? Totally. I got it. But um, so, yeah, for me, it was just a creative outlet. I really wasn't thinking about it in any other way. And I think the thing I was so interested in sitting in London, mm-hmm. because I, I— Sure, I'd love to think that I'm so smart and so reflective and all that stuff. I'm probably not. I really think it was that contrast of going from this company that had become sort of synonymous with the internet, right, mm-hmm. and all the good of it at mm-hmm. the time, right? At the time. And then going to a place that was so opposite and asking myself, wow, what would happen if you actually had people who had no moral compass with the resources and the influence of like a Google right. or a Facebook? Like right. what does that look like? Right. And that's that was sort Which of my the mentality. Circle was kind it. of about, right? Like we'll talk about that in a minute. But, yeah. they, they, but the idea is that you had you had these well, there are a couple companies like that, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> Just so you know. Um, we're here with Jessica Powell. She's written a book called The Big Disruption. Again, the best title ever, The Big Disruption, a totally fictional but essentially true Silicon Valley story. Before she was a novice, she worked at Google, and she ran its communications as the vice president. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back after this. Hey, it's Peter. I am cutting back in to tell you about our fine sponsor. Today's show is brought to you by Mack Weldon. They make the most comfortable hoodies, sweatpants, underwear, and socks you'll ever wear. If you've listened to this show before, you know that I buy Mack Weldon products myself. I wear a lot of socks from them. They're awesome. There's a line of silver underwear and shirts made from naturally antimicrobial fiber that actually eliminates odor. 
Mack Weldon believes in smart design, premium fabrics, and simple shopping, and they are easy to buy. Go to MacWeldon.com. You'll get 20% off your order with the promo code RECODE. That's MacWeldon.com, promo code RECODE. If you don't like your first order, this is amazing. You just keep it. Mack Weldon will send you your money back. It means you get free clothes. But you'll like them. You'll keep them. Get 20% off at MacWeldon.com. Use the promo code RECODE so they know I sent you there. That's MacWeldon.com, promo code RECODE. We're here with Jessica Powell, the author of The Big Disruption, a totally fictional but essentially true Silicon Valley story. Jessica used to work at Google in a very highfalutin position, and now she's a novelist. And this novel is really terrific. And it's, it, it, I want to say it's about Google. It's about tech. It's not a tell-all of Google. It doesn't, no, no it's, it's a tell-all of everybody, I think, in yeah. a lot of ways. And I want you to read another excerpt from the book now. We've been introduced to a janitor who then becomes something else. This one about a management team meeting. Yeah, so RCN, the janitor, has just crashed the management team meeting, and we're about to meet the management team. Because they don't know who he is. They right, right. And he gets a job he's not... He's not qualified to do. Yeah, it's like being there with Peter Sellers. Yeah, or a little bit like, um, yeah, or Scoop, Scoop something right. like that, yeah. Mm-hmm. Though the, Scoop is better, yeah. Yeah, though the, the, the gimmick does not last long. I don't make people right. have that the whole time. RCN figures it out pretty quickly. All right. The daily management meeting was itself an exercise in yogic patience and discipline, with all five members of the team doing a generally poor job of tolerating each other. Although they were a small group, the men spread themselves out around the table, allowing spaces of two or three chairs between them. In addition to Gregor, there was old Al, the company's only gray-haired engineer, occasionally useful for his 54 years of wisdom. A few seats down sat Greg Fisher, the chief financial and corporate affairs officer, CFCAO, who ran all the departments, legal, finance, marketing, and PR, that were seen as necessary evils in helping run a large company. Equal in irrelevance was H.R. Paul, the head of the human resources department, who was generally regarded as a nincompoop psychology PhD with a flatulence problem. And then there was Niels, a.k.a. the salesman. The master engineer and the master salesman did not like each other, but today Niels seemed to be paying Gregor no attention. Gregor grimaced as Niels bent his gel-slicked head over the small notepad that he carried around in his front pocket. He found the mere existence of Niels' notepad an insult to the advances of technology and word processing software. Gregor had disliked Anahata's new head of advertising from the instant he spotted him on campus, a plastic smile fixed on his face, a fancy designer suit falling from his shoulders like a second skin. With his wingtips pointed sharply in the direction of his target, Niels had approached Gregor to suggest the engineering team fix the advertising system interface so that Anahata's engineers could more easily place their ads online. Gregor quickly informed Niels that Anahata was about its users first and foremost, and that its users, and just as important, Anahata's engineers, did not care about an improved advertising system. Implicit in his explanation was the unwritten philosophical hierarchy of Anahata. Engineers at the top, then users, and then long after that, cheerleaders, janitors, creationists, and finally, the Anahata sales team. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. That is Google. That is all of them. That is all of them, pretty much. So you change it, obviously, over time, and I've read different versions of it. What was the goal here? So you, so you, first of all, let me get back. So you go to Google, and you work your way up to the top. You got Uh to the top. You took over after Rachel Whetstone left first for for Uber. And you, that's a big job. (laughs) Yeah, it was. (laughs) Did you have any time to work on this when you were doing it? No, no, you didn't. Not at all. And you have kids and everything else. Yeah. Yeah, that, oh, those, those three kids. What was that like being at the top there when you were thinking things like this? You know what I mean? Because you were at top of what is considered one of the more powerful PR organizations on the planet. And you and I have gone through so many different things from Sergey's issues when to— you, Whenever I'd see your phone number like, <laughs> pop up on my phone, I'd be like, oh, no. Oh, no, what happened? What's a terrible <laughs> thing? But we went through a lot of issues. There's a, there was just one after the next after yeah. the next um, until Facebook took over as the, as the bad person of Silicon Valley, essentially a bad company of Silicon Valley. Talk about that job and then thinking about this. Like, how 
you, you were at the very top of your profession, essentially. Yeah, I mean, and I think the job was definitely a hard job. It felt very different from my early jobs at Google, not just simply in terms of the responsibility, but when I was working on individual products, I was working with small teams. You knew everyone you were working with. Um, and you like really when felt they were introducing what like, like Chrome mm-hmm. or a, like book search. I was on I a long time. That. Yeah, I remember working on that. And and you didn't felt, I scoop it by accident? What'd you say? Didn't I scoop that by? I did. Is that you? That I was, was in me. Europe, so yeah. I, did, I kind of yeah, that yeah. was me. And so I went from really knowing the people I worked with and really understanding a particular product or a particular issue really, really deeply to then being across everything. And most of the stuff that I'd be doing from day to day was actually corporate issues, Mm -hmm. which is funny because as a product company, what you really want is for people to be focused on your products all the time. But if you're doing the top job at a product company that is massive, like Google, really what you're doing is actually how do you keep people from from writing all kinds of stuff, not about products, but all these corporate issues. Mm -hmm. So it really just felt like you went from one big corporate thing to another. You know, I don't know if I really thought about the book in like how I reconciled the two because I was so overwhelmed, frankly, and Mm -hmm. and just going from one crisis to the next and just trying to make it through each day that I think I had things pretty compartmentalized, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, I don't recall kind of going, oh, but there's this book. For for those who don't know, and then I want to talk about why you left, um, what is it like being a top PR person in Silicon Valley? And it sounds like a broad question, but I think we don't think of how important that function is to these companies. And I think within the companies, they're not as well-respected as they should be, even though they're critical when things go wrong. It's always PR's problem. It's always always PR's fault. Fault, For these people that are so irrelevant, it's always our fault. Yes, exactly. (laughs) But it's a hard situation in Silicon Valley because— they enjoyed an enormous amount of positive press for a very long time, and then it shifted, really, not suddenly, but over time. Um, but there was always a crisis as they got more and more powerful. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, I think from a—this kind of like a personal and a professional incident. On a personal level, I think what's really difficult being a quote-unquote top PR person is— you never—there is no downtime, and not in that sense that we all say, oh, we're all online all the time on, right now, which, of course, is true. But, you know, you I couldn't go to a wedding. I couldn't go and do anything without checking my phone every few minutes or the chance that there would be some huge explosion of something. Mm-hmm. And for the most part, too, you know, you go on vacation or something like that, and if there, if there's truly a crisis— you're the one that, say, the people on the management team talk to every single day. So you can't not be involved yeah, in, like in it, you know. And so that's just really, really difficult to balance, I think, personally. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it very much contributed to me wanting to leave. Like, I didn't want to be tech 24 hours mm-hmm. a day. On the professional side, you know, I think that when you're in PR, along with, like, policy, um, some parts of marketing, you are really interfacing with the outside world all the time. And so your job is to, and I think legal has this too in a, in a different way. Your job is, is you can't always be the na- like the, the person that says no to everything, but your, your responsibility is very much to try and reflect what the outside world is going to think about things. Mm-hmm. Sometimes that can be very small things like, you know, actually no, the little, you know, this little tiny feature that you've added or you've changed the color of your product that actually is not an exciting PR story and we're not going to do PR around it. Right. Other times, it's much, much bigger things, you know, of, of James if DeVore. you do, right, or if you do X, this is what's going to happen, and you need to, like, understand the consequences. So I feel like a lot of my job was trying to inject a little bit more realism mm-hmm. into what we were doing. And I think people were generally receptive to that. Um, it's just that sometimes you would come into the process so late in the game that you felt like you were kind of molding at the edges rather than— right. 
kind of fundamentally. Fundamentally. Yeah. In, in, in the beginning, I just had Nicole Wong on. I don't know if you listened to talking about that same thing. Is she was trying to push it from a legal point of view in a certain way before things. Right. Anticipation. Right. And I think one of the things I talk a lot is the fact that they don't understand consequences. They never anticipate consequences. Yeah. So what were you trying to get to in this book then? I'm totally official, essentially big disruption. What was the idea? Because there's a lot of these themes in this book. Right. I mean, I think the thing that I became increasingly frustrated by as I sat there, and this book is just gaining digital dust, Mm -hmm. is these sort of two narratives that I felt had merged around tech. Mm -hmm. On the one hand, within the companies, and when I say the companies, I don't just mean big tech. I think startups in some ways can be even worse about this because I think the big companies have been slapped on the wrist enough that they're starting to learn. Right. This kind of self-delusional Kool-Aid drinking about how they're saving the world or doing this grand, grand, wonderful thing. And then at the other extreme, you have this external narrative around tech, which is these dystopian narratives that mm-hmm. everyone in tech wants to steal your data and steal your jobs. And the problem with the dystopian narrative is that if you're sitting in tech, and you're sitting in the valley, you're building something, and someone's coming along telling you you're an evil tech overlord, and you're just sitting there like— That would be me. <laughs> yeah, but you're like, I don't know. I'm building a cloud storage solution for dogs. Mm-hmm. Like, how does that penetrate? How does that get you to mm-hmm. start thinking about things in a different light? Right. And on top of that, some of the people that write these dystopias, not all of them, don't really understand tech. Like, mm-hmm. they, they don't understand what a browser is, or they don't mm-hmm. understand the differences between, like, about platforms and that kind of thing. And so, again, that's one more reason to not listen to them. Mm-hmm. And what I wanted to do was do something that showed all the love and the appreciation I do have for tech, for the, the really, truly, like, unique things about the culture and the mm-hmm. amazing products they build. But at the same time, like, cast a critical, like, light on all of that. And my hope is that by doing something that that is funny and light and yes exaggerated like mm-hmm. satire that people will listen to it and it might it might spark some conversation that might not have happened uh, but when otherwise. you're doing satire it's it's you can't not it's not kind it's not it's not right. a kind, it's maybe a funny way of doing like um, Evelyn Moscope um, yeah. was not kind to journalism yeah. <laughs> like let's yeah. just say it was like this idiot that made up a war essentially yeah. um and she pointing out the ridiculousness of the mm-hmm. entire endeavor essentially talk about the you were just saying there's on one things you don't want to give up what's good about tech what's good about tech i mean what I, do you think I, you reflected in the book if i just think about this morning mm-hmm. right i mean i i used a lift i docu signed something LastPass is, like, is everything to me. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can't think of more boring—sorry, guys— like, more boring products than, like, DocuSign and LastPass, mm-hmm. right? Like, those are another— um, And yet they're life-changing mm-hmm. for me, the amount of time they've saved. Mm-hmm. I used Google Maps to get here. Like, there, there's so much good, like, from a utility perspective, right. with, like, with behind a lot of these products. I feel so bad for DocuSign and LastPass now. And— uh, They're utilities. Yeah, and they're great. And I really appreciate the companies that are just like, this is what we are. And you can still be a little aspirational, like mm-hmm. you got to do your marketing, but don't overstate what they're doing. Right. Um, and and so and then so I like got all that. the utilities. Yeah, I like the right. utility stuff is great. Then you have at different times. I really do think that tech has set the bar and led the way in taking strong stands on stuff. I mm-hmm. think it is. I think we're actually in in the start of a really great time where people are expecting companies to have a voice on things. Well, just this morning, Melinda Gates said, "Thank you for your courage." Dr. Ford, mm. which I was like, whoa, she never does that. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Was, now, she doesn't represent Microsoft, but she certainly represents the Gateses, yeah. which is interesting. And so, I like, those two things really stand out to me. Just the—and the different way of doing things. I, I think that the general—there's a lot of downsides to the mentality, yeah, for sure. Yeah. But one aspect I really appreciate, which I do hope comes through in the book, is the inventiveness, mm-hmm. right? That I do think you're in an environment where people are not constantly saying no to you and that 
you're generally encouraged to come up with stuff. And certainly, particularly, I would say living abroad, because there are a lot of countries where entrepreneurship is not encouraged the same way it is in the U.S., right. you really start to appreciate that kind of right. mentality. Right. And then the downsides? <laughs> there's so many. I mean, there's many, but I think the biggest one oh, there to me— like that one thing around the table. I know those people. <laughs> and I don't like many of them, i got to tell you. Yeah. Um, the, the, I think the biggest thing for me is this black and white thinking. I think it lends itself to a level of, like, moral abstraction. Mm-hmm. So so just last weekend, I'm out with my husband, and sitting near us are two men. One works at Facebook. He was in BD. I learned a lot about him because they were talking really loudly. Okay. So That's there's a Facebook— I know. There's this Facebook BD guy, and then there's some other guy who works mm-hmm. in tech. And the other guy's asking the Facebook guy about Cambridge Analytica. And, oh, you guys are going through a rough patch type of stuff. And the Facebook guy says— yeah, but, you know, when you serve 2 billion users, like, bad stuff's going to happen, and oh, it's just a small thing. amount. Yeah. And that's, of course, that's a horrible answer. Now, it, like, I cringed first because there's a level of me going, I mean, I'd hope I wouldn't have written that mm-hmm. as a talking point for an external right. person, but right. I could have, right. right? Like, mm-hmm. and so part of me was recognizing that there was a line that had been given and that this guy was repeating. That's right. I've but heard the, that line. But the much bigger problem for me is that the argument itself, because if you if you if these all just become data points, mm-hmm. if it's just two billion users, well, whatever like one percent of two billion, that's still a lot of like live suicides mm-hmm. and Myanmar's mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and electoral interference. Like and you lose that human element of it. Right. And, and so everything is so kind of— Why does that happen? Because I think you do reflect that in this book, this idea of, of not understanding the power of what they're creating. I mean, I think there's— Like you were saying, what if a bad company got a hold of a lot of— Right. bad person get a hold of a lot, a lot of power. Right. I think um, it, there's an over-reliance at times on data. Mm-hmm. And, of course, it, I understand why that happens. Right, You're dealing with very large populations mm-hmm. of users. But I think data only really tells one side of a story. Mm-hmm. And when you forget the individual stories and the users and the people there, you quickly find yourselves in, in, in a place like, I mean, Cambridge, just to think about Cambridge Analytica again, when that story came out and someone, a journalist, whoever it was, accused them of a data breach, how did Facebook react? Their immediate response was, it wasn't a data breach. Right. It was actually far worse than a data breach because they knew <laughs> yeah. it was not a breach. Right, right. Um, they used the system as it but, was designed. But they processed that as... Mm-hmm. We've been accused of a data a breach, and you know, just or like with the NSA. Right. Well, we don't know of a program called Prism. Well, right. you might not have known of a program called Prism. The question was, was there a back door? That right. was the fundamental question. Mm-hmm. So then, so Facebook digs in their heels, and they're like, it's not a data breach. And then, sure enough, three days later, they're having to apologize, and it's similar with yeah. fake news. Mm-hmm. And the, what really people were saying to them on that first day, whatever words they were using actually were not as important as what the sentiment was, which the sentiment was, was you have betrayed us. Mm-hmm. We're upset. What are you going to do about it? And that's not how Facebook handled it, right? Right, right. So I, I think that Yeah, I think the, the data point issue, is, which I think you get through, is they don't understand the power that they have. Yeah. They do not—they fundamentally do not understand all of them, mm-hmm. Google, Facebook. I think Apple does a little more than others, but they have less power, I would say, overall compared to the, those two companies. When we get back, we're talking with Jessica Powell. She's the author of The Big Disruption, a totally fictional but essentially true Silicon Valley story. We're going to take another break now, but we'll be back after this. Hey, it's Peter again. A quick break to tell you about a fine sponsor. Today's show is brought to you by Hilton. When you travel for work, do you stay by the airport or do you stay downtown? Do you take your clients out for dinner? Do you have room service? Should you pack your swimsuit? How do you answer these questions? Just ask yourself, what would the boss do? Here's the answer. The boss would choose Hilton. Hilton has modern meeting spaces and amazing pools and everything else you need to get down to business. And a little pleasure. So check out Hilton Hotels and Resorts 
and travel like a boss. We're here with Jessica Powell, the author of The Big Disruption. It's going to go up on Medium, right? We'll talk yes. about this in a minute. Mm-hmm. Jessica, you brought one more excerpt of the book that I've asked you to read. As I see, this one is called Fake News. Oh, boy, <laughs> can you read it? Sure. Yeah, I've heard of that. It's a thing. Anahata loved democracy. Democracy meant free speech. Democracy meant an open internet. Democracy meant a boundless sea of opportunity for online advertising. But there was even more at stake in Peria. This wasn't just a battle to free an inconsequential country. If Anahata could succeed in overthrowing the government, Bobby was convinced the company would see a democracy uptick in its stock price. Under Gregor's direction, Anahata's infrastructure engineers harnessed all their skills, IP prestidigitation, networked hot air balloons, Wi-Fi-enabled squirrels, to work around the government's block and make the internet accessible again in Pudelkek. The search engineers created a new ranking algorithm designed to ensure that negative articles about the despotic government would appear in the topmost position of Peria's search results. Immolated monks, raped women, limbless elderly, and dead orphans would all be listed on the first page for any number of search queries, with graphic images and tales of atrocity immediately leaping to the eyes of anyone searching for even the most innocent information. Even if the government managed to keep the internet down in Pudelkek, Anahata would flood the rest of the country with the re-ranked results. If previous Anahata revolutions were any indication, the incendiary results would incite unrest elsewhere in the country, eventually leading to revolt and a total collapse of the government. A new progressive leader would take over, Arsene would be freed, and the world would celebrate the triumph of democracy and Anahata. For eight hours, the Mutify team worked to build a new Perian search engine, going through 30 cans of Red Bull, 20 bags of Anahata's signature organic potato chips, and trying their best to ignore the beckoning Circean pings from their social me app. Finally, in the darkest hours of morning, taurine and glucose dripping from their pores, they reached the last dramatic step. The team typed in the last final line of code. The cursor blinked back at them, pulsing like an explosive light. They turned to Gregor, who gave them the nod. The team lead put his index finger atop a single enter key, closed his eyes, and on the count of three, pushed. Oh, man. You're never working in tech again, are you? (laughs) (laughs) So talk about that, writing this. You're the PR person, and this is... These are glimpses. (laughs) Well, the crazy... So the... I wrote that in 2012. Right. Um, the and now, like I know, I know. Like, and this, this you know, and when Google I wrote story it, story that came out about changing, possibly changing surf results around immigrants, which created this feeling that conservatives aren't are being represented, which is not true. Yeah. But yeah. anyway, um, but you're saying they can do it. <laughs> well, yeah. so I when I wrote it, so 2012, and I think it was 2011 that the Arab Spring happened, mm-hmm. and of course, Facebook and Twitter had been key in organizing right. a lot of the protests. Right. And because Anahata does a lot of stuff around information as, as one of its many, many, many products, they don't have social media, uh, like, platform. So mm-hmm. I was trying to think, well, okay, well, if an information company was going to do a kind of an Arab Spring type thing, what would that look like? Right. And that's that's how that came about. Right. But at the time, I was like, this is ridiculous. Because people then, would, I mean, from, from very, like, from when I was always working at Google— People would accuse Google of re-ranking results, that kind mm-hmm. of thing. So I was also sort of— continuing to. Yeah. So I was kind of doing a riff on that mm-hmm. um, because internally what you would see is is the things, the conspiracy theories people would come with, uh, come up with outside the company never really matched to what was happening inside. I never saw a case of, right. you know, people mucking with the search results. Right. For, right. That's the, that's the problem. Sometimes, you know, when Donald Trump says something, I'll, I'll be like, no, it's not that. It's over here that they're actually—you know what I mean? The stuff they focus on, I'm like— you're directionally correct. They are up to things, but not that. They're up to, like, something much more, like, harder to figure out kind of stuff. And it's not quite as easy, you know what I mean, to understand, which is enormous power over people's information and picking and choosing or not picking and choosing. And by doing that, you create power. But getting back to that, 
you're writing about something that feels very now, like feels yeah. very today. Yeah. I mean, I even thought, I, so I revised this before. I mean, the whole Medium thing has happened super right, explain fast. Explain what it's going to go on, and then I want to get back to this. So it's going up on Medium. Yeah. So it's going up on— um, You didn't go the traditional route. No. So before I went back to Google, I did—I showed it to a few people, mm-hmm. and everyone was like, there is no market for stuff about Silicon Valley. Yeah. And I was like, really? Yeah. And then, of course, a lot of stuff happened in Silicon Valley, the show, and, and so forth. But um, that's why I just— Because a lot didn't succeed. Yeah, and I just sort of shelved it and, mm-hmm. and figured, okay, well, no one's going to ever read this. A friend sent Medium the manuscript, and I'd actually had the conversation with this friend just saying, I think, I think I'm done. I, like, I, I just don't think this is ever going to go anywhere. But a friend sent the manuscript to someone at Medium, and they liked it. And they do all kinds of experimentation with the mm-hmm. platform, and they were interested in getting This into, is a platform that publishes. Let's yeah, and so they, they never they really focused on nonfiction, but they really wanted to see what it would look like to do a piece of fiction um, mm-hmm. and, uh, and a book. And the whole thing, I mean, it's been a matter of weeks, but it's been great. And I, I think it's really cool because that means that people anywhere in the world, aside from the fact that it's obviously a super fast turnaround, mm-hmm. I mean, who knows if tech will even exist in two years, right? right. If I'd, well, not really, but like if I'd gone through the traditional publishing right. route. But also it's globally accessible, which right. is kind of so cool. So the whole thing is going to go up. And, this is a long mm-hmm. reads effort they're doing, correct? Yeah. Mm-hmm. They're doing that. And then you could read the entire thing. You can read can the entire thing. It? And you have um, three. I think there are ways to put this stuff on your e-readers. Mm-hmm. Um, but that reading app, particularly on the app, is, is pretty nice because you can bookmark content and come back to it. Mm-hmm. It'll be in It's uh, just in a few days. Yeah. So you um, And then you wrote a letter about mm-hmm. it. Explain what you said there, just um, briefly. Well, I talked a little bit about... Uh, why I wrote the book. I told that story about being in at the tech conference. Mm-hmm. The reason I wrote that essay and the reason I wrote the book, what really interested me was exploring this idea of, you know, the book is fundamentally about a company, Anahata, mm-hmm. and it's desperate quest to control everything and be everywhere and be at the very top. Mm-hmm. And I was really interested in asking this question of what is it that drives, if you're a search company or a social media company or a company that has an online bookstore, how is it that you go from that to, you know, having drones and AI and a grocery store? Like, how does that kind of expansion happen? You know, and again, going back to that thing I was saying earlier about dystopian narratives, if the narrative is that, oh, they just want all your data and they just want all of your—they mm-hmm. just want your jobs. Right. In, that's not it. Like, it, it, in some way, that might be more reassuring because there's an endpoint to that. Right. Right? Right. For me, it's actually a much more primitive kind of— ego FOMO kind of thing, right? right? Which is that, oh, well, they see all these opportunities and they can't bear the thought that they're not in on it. That's right. And they just keep going and yes, going and eat. going. Yes. And you that's know why I always I, call them the Borg. <laughs> I call Google the Borg. I call them all the Borg. They're all the Borg. They are, will never be, you must submit to us. Like, yeah. we, we're just going to eat everything. I was thinking that the other day with Amazon. Someone was like, oh, they're in microwaves. I said, oh, they'll be in your business tomorrow. Like, well, they have I, to be. They can't, they're yeah. like sharks. They can't and stop eating and moving. But see, the sharks, right? So maybe that maybe you think they're sharks. I, I think in that book, The Circle, they're the the yeah. metaphor was a shark. In my mind, they're not sharks. The boar. They are. They're a squid. They're the kraken, <laughs> right? You've got, like the tentacles are everywhere. They're taking everything, and then on top of it, it's like this goofy, charming lava lamp. Yeah, you know hackathon, whatever kind right. of culture. It's like quirky and kooky looking, and meanwhile, it's grabbing up everything. Right. So, okay, how did you do this? Why did you're a PR person? Mm. This is not good PR for tech. It's not good people, but, like, I think you should be able to love tech. Yeah, but what did you think about it? I want to know what you thought about it. Thought you about were the book literally thought... the most important company, one of the most important companies in tech, running their PR. Oh, and so what, what did I generally yeah, think about? Yeah, like, uh-oh, did you call them? Did you say, oh, this is what I'm doing now, or 
Do you feel like they'll feel betrayed or what? I think Googlers are super funny. I do not always think that they are funny when people are criticizing them. Mm-hmm. The book is not about them any more so than any of yes, these companies. Yes, but, but people will think but that. But people will think that, which right. kills me a little bit because a lot of these people I care about, and mm-hmm. it, it makes me sad that that's how they'll interpret it. And I will tell them before this happens because I just don't think you should surprise people with mm-hmm. things. But I should be able to like this stuff and criticize it. I think mm-hmm. that's the biggest thing is that it, it you shouldn't you should be able to, and, and internally in these companies, they should continue to celebrate all this stuff they're building and continue to encourage this mentality of like build and, and think big and what are these big problems? Because some of that stuff is really inspiring. But you should also be able to say, you know, okay, we're getting rid of the middleman and that's great for all these reasons. That means we're getting rid of a person, mm-hmm. right? Or, oh, we're building a platform where anyone can say anything they want. Oh, that means that we're building a platform where anyone can say, say anything, anything they, they want. want. Hello, Alex and I think Jones. I think that's that's the problem is that it con- there's always this like idealistic we're doing these amazing things mm-hmm. and they don't always interrogate the other stuff. And I think that also comes from this black and white anticipation and consequences yeah. is lacking self reflection. You know, I wrote about this this week with Kevin Systrom. He's one of the ones who actually does. He's like, oh, all right, you know, almost to a person. There's like I could. It, it's hard to find people who think about that. Yeah. There's always some excuse. Well, you know, this and that. And that's what gets me exhausted, I think. But again, but you feel like it has to be said. Like it has to be said. Why? Yeah. Well, and I think I don't think all these companies are in, are entirely equal in mm-hmm. their their wrongdoing. I mm-hmm. mean, I think Google, for example, and again, I'm not I'm not saying that they are perfect. Mm-hmm. I actually think in part because they had they're, they're a little bit older and they've had more slaps on their wrist by dint of that mm-hmm. just being around longer. I think they do think about this a little bit more. And I think because of the founding of it early on, they took some very strong stances on stuff. It's. I think there's a little bit more of a consciousness there mm-hmm. than in some of the other companies. All right. Um, again, yeah, they still have. They, yeah, 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 yeah. No, they still have stuff. I'm not saying yeah. they don't. I think Facebook, in particular, really Challenge. quickly yeah. <laughs> needs to get, like figure that out because yeah. I, you know, I, it was pretty extraordinary to me listening to the podcast and everyone made so much noise about oh, his Zuckerberg. Holocaust comment. Yeah, my podcast with yeah, him, yeah. Mm-hmm, about his Holocaust comment, which I understand. But to me, the, the really extraordinary part of that was I don't know how many times you asked him about the sense of responsibility he feels. And the, I don't know if evasive is the word. It was almost just like he, he, wasn't, he wasn't answering the question you were asking. He is completely self, not self-reflective. I, like I was joking before, if they, there was a mirror, I'm surprised he can see himself in it. You know what I mean? Like yeah. they're vampires. Like, you know, like they, it's fascinating. And I was trying, and believe me, nice person. Like, that's the thing, is getting a lot of these people, and he's just one of them, of the many, but pretty far down that line, to self-reflect is just—and not feel that it's criticism. Right. You know, not, not even criticism that you're attacking. Right. You're mean. You know, if, if I hear one more time you're mean, I'm like, I'm not mean. I'm realistic. You just don't like reality. You know what I mean? They yeah. want to live in this different world. So what happens now? Do they get it, or will it be a PR thing where they say they get it and don't get it? I mean, if you were a PR person right now with this tech lash, <laughs> right— what would I do? And by the way, it's you're going to keep the tech lash going with this book, I think. It's going to be very, people are going to be like, oh, man, someone on the inside is telling X-Google, us. X-Google, exec, X-Google turns on the industry. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 You ready for that? Yeah, or I'm not X-Google execs writes tell-all about Google, and then they decide that the like the nymphomaniac CEO is Larry Page. And no. No, I don't really think so. Another one. <laughs> <laughs> not naming names. But um, but we know who it is. Um, were you worried about that? Was that a, is that a worry for you? I think only 
like, just on a very personal level, I, right. I, that a feeling that people are going to people who I worked with for many years um, are going to somehow think that I've betrayed them. But at no point was I ever thinking I was writing yeah. a book about them or about their. It was it's much no, it's broader than that. Pieces along the way, and then there's also just like the nervousness generally of putting some. You know, particularly when you're a PR person, you're so behind the scenes. No right. one ever sees you. You're with right. all of your puppet mastery or whatever, <laughs> and all of a sudden to be <laughs> Have that you person puppet mastered me. You'll never know. You'll never know. Um, but I remember. I do remember once when or early on in my career, there was uh, an issue I was dealing with, not particularly interesting, um, but an issue I was dealing with, and it was like this long slog to try and convince journalists and the you know broader like group of people that that what we were doing was right. And I finally got this journalist to write the story about how great we were. And my husband wakes up and he was like reading. This is back in the day. He was like reading Slashdot, yeah. and he he like announces to me as I'm getting changed. Oh hey, Sla- there's this thing on Slashdot that says this product I was working on that this product is actually really good. And I was like ha 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 ha. <laughs> um, oh I was like I have fooled my husband. What a triumph. Oh my god. I know that sounds horrible. It is horrible. Um, I mean, but it doesn't I, but sound horrible. It no, is horrible. No, no. Well, no. Hold on. Here's my one okay. defense of that All is right. that the thing that I was working oh, you're doing on. PR right now. Okay. No, no, no. This is my genuine. Okay. I genuinely very—it it was tied to book search. And right. the thing, I really felt like the mission of book search mm-hmm. was extraordinary. Yeah. And that while maybe the company could have gone about it better in terms of how they rolled it out and, you know, got to get into the details of that. But, like, the end goal was something that I remember I wanted to see. Started, like actually, page stay, had to stay in an apartment of mine because— there was a blackout in New York, and they were going around to the publishers. And I remember talking about him all night in the middle of a blackout. And I, it, the idea was great. Yeah. The, the maw of which you wanted to suck everything in on, I wasn't quite Yeah, I mean, I don't of. think I think they, they, they it was probably a mistake, too. I wasn't there when they started. No, it, it so was So I don't very, remember, but it was like they did the publisher program. And at the same time as, like, this library stuff, it, was, it wasn't it was the same problem. I sat with and talked about the idea. It was a great idea. But the it's not greed. They're un insatiable need for to suck in all the information, I did not see. Yeah. I did a little bit. You'd see it around the edges. But, I, I, you know, when, they one time were taping all of television, and I walked into a room, and they're like, well, because you can do it. I'm like, do you have the copyright? And they're like, <laughs> what do you need that for? And I was like, and I remember thinking, oh, my God, like, what is wrong with these people? And, you know, you didn't yeah. think they were going to get that big, like yeah. that kind of thing. And then I realized once they did all the books— Nobody would do all that. Then they'd have it all. Right. I mean, then you then you start to get into the the other issues. Yeah. At the the thing that the specific thing I was working on, I really believed in, and so I felt really accomplished. But I did I did love just as some weird, right. like I really loved the fact that I convinced. <laughs> yeah, totally. That I. You know, so are you going to go back? Traded my husband's like. So now you're not doing PR. Now no, you're no, I'm done with PR. So um, are you working on another book? Is there another one in the hopper? <laughs> I've been for a while like playing with the idea of. A bunch of um, kind of HR department where everyone is so ambitious that they start murdering each other. Oh we'll my see. God, that it's, sounds like I know. Uber. I don't. Who knows what will happen? I also started to write one about like a cult that makes all their money by selling croissants. So who knows where yeah, any of this yeah, stuff yeah. goes? I like the the murdering HR <laughs> department. We know some people that would probably <laughs> would consider doing that. You know that. So right now, last last question: Silicon Valley, bad place, good place? How would you spin it right Oof. now? The I tech mean, clash. So Everybody you're saying did. if I was in PR at one yes. of these places, what would yeah. I do? Any of them. Ugh. I mean— If you were the head of PR for all of tech, for big tech. Maybe I'd hand them all, like, the Panopticon and ask them to read it. Uh, okay. Explain that. <laughs> well, just, like, I, I, I also have a little bugbear about—and this I am not—I do not mean to make broad generalizations about what people read and mm-hmm. everyone's backgrounds. But the lack of diversity, ac- like, across the board— 
in tech. And every year, I mean, it's just become this, like, annual parade of, like, dismal figures, right? right. The lack of diversity, and it goes beyond, you know, I think they do figures for, they break Mm -hmm. out ethnicity and gender. Those are huge. There's also just a lack of diversity of thought Mm -hmm. when you think of people's backgrounds, Mm -hmm. right? So much of what these companies are doing today, perhaps compared to the early days, are about values Mm -hmm. and judgments. Mm -hmm. And I think that those are kind of critical thinking skills that don't necessarily come with a CS degree. Right. And, like, I think that—and, again, I'm not saying that engineers don't read. The number of people that have lectured me about sapiens. Mm -hmm. Yes. (laughs) I know everyone at least is reading sapiens. Yeah. But I think there's a real value to— Reading historical texts and yes. and you know if you're if you're going to be in an argument about censorship, roughly know like Fahrenheit 451, right, right, <laughs> or, or you know or, or just yeah. kind of thought through those issues. You know that's my thing. Humanities. I, I mean, I think it's a lot of our yeah. things, right? Yeah. And that and that it's just it, I I do feel, and I think those those people are already at the company. Right. It's just they don't always have a seat at the table or their voice isn't as heard. I. Uh, I think they shouldn't be making choices if they don't know how to do that. I think they're ill-equipped to make the choices that they are faced with, and it frightens me I, I, that they are so ill-equipped and so not well-read. I know it sounds they're not, they're not, they don't have a background in government. They don't understand history, history particularly. Yeah. That's the one. And I'll never forget, you know, when I got in an argument with either Larry or Sergey, I don't remember which one it was, when they were trying to do Yahoo Search, trying to buy it, and I said, you can't, you can't have all of it. And they were like, we're good people. You know, that was that thing. And I said, well, maybe what if Hitler runs Google someday? And they were like, what is that supposed to mean? I'm like, Hitler runs Google. Think about that. Like, can you, like, I studied that forever, you know, and it was interesting. So so in your final thing, what is your goal for this book? What would you like that you'd like them to read it? And what would you like them to get out of it? I would like them to laugh. I'd like them to be able to laugh at themselves. They can't. I'd like them to see that you can love something but also be critical of it. Mm -hmm. And for them to say, all right, what is it that we're building right now? And how is it, how can we, rather than having our starting point always be scale and machines and right now AI, (laughs) um, say, what is actually the best way to tackle this problem? Because actually today, maybe one day, today machines can't stop the fact that because I searched for toddler stuff, right now, this morning, I was suggested, like in my feed, I was suggested a bunch of toddler death stuff. At no point ever do I want to wake up in the morning and have the first thing I see be toddler death stories. Right. children falling and killing themselves. Right. Machines can't fix that for me. I'm sure they will one day, but they can't today. So what are you going to do? And I mean, that's like in the grand scheme of things, a really benign example. But what are you going to do to make sure that that tiny, tiny, tiny percent of your two billion, that that stuff isn't happening? Jessica, I wish you were running Google. <laughs> no idea. I wish you're still there. I'm telling you, I miss you. I miss you. <laughs> I miss you. It's a really, this, you can tell why I like uh, Jessica, because she was always so thoughtful, even though she was being a puppet ma- master too. <laughs> she was a good puppet master. <laughs> we're going to find out what you puppet master me. Yeah, I don't think you did that much. If I did. Did you? I mean, would I ever tell you You've that? You've moved me to be nicer in stories. That's yeah, I mean, Sergei I think, I think the it, whole Sergey thing. I you, think you, you, you did it. I was nicer than I should Look have at my poker face. Right. The, um, the, I think that is actually the most realistic. I, I, I shouldn't have even told that story because it does no, give right. PR such a bad no, rap. No, but it's true. That's I what think really mean. what you're aiming for is you're trying to help. You are trying to usually soften stories, not— Yeah, okay, got it. <laughs> <laughs> not, them, not have people murdered. Have a yeah. story about having journalists murdered. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> no, don't, don't talk about that. That's a terrible thing because it's actually happened recently, so I shouldn't even joke about it. All right, anyway, Jessica, it was great talking to you. Thanks for coming on the show. 
Thanks to Peter Kafka to letting me invade his podcast so that we could run this interview the same day that the book comes out. If you like this, then obviously you need to listen to my show, Recode Decode. But also, I have a new podcast with Scott Galloway from NYU called Pivot. You can find Recode Decode and Pivot wherever you listen to Recode Media. And again, it's Jessica's book. Jessica, where can they find you? Jessica Powell, the author of The Big Disruption, a totally fictional but essentially true Silicon Valley story. They can find it on Medium now. Yep. And... Where can they find you? Are you online? Are you on Twitter? On I, Twitter? I'm, I'm on Twitter at the MoCo, and I imagine I will be there for a week. Okay, good. All right, good. Okay, that'll be great. And you should use the Twitter. I, I hear the president I'm, I'm uses scared it. of the Twitter. I think no. it'll last not very long. No, you'll be fine. You need to use it for, to get your book out. I recommend you read it. It's I've read all the different iterations of it. It's a terrific book and very dead on about the people. I, it was pretty much my life when I was looking at some of the characters. And now back to Peter Kafka. Thanks, guys. This has been a bonus episode of Recode Media. Thanks to Jessica Powell for coming on. And thanks to Kara Swisher for talking to Jessica Powell. Thanks, guys. Before we go, one more time, if you like this show, tell someone else about it. You know how to do that. But just a reminder, it is very easy to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. You can do it from your phone. Just a click. Easy. Thanks to our sponsors. Thanks to Cadence 13 and Vox Media who bring those sponsors to you so you can listen to Recode Media for free. Thanks to Joel Robbie, Golda Arthur, Eric Johnson, and many other people at Vox Media. Vox Media is great. This is Recode Media. We will see you on Thursday.